the idea of different forms of communication that maps perfectly onto this slow paradigm, right? Because slow, I come back again to the idea that it's it's not everything is slow, right? It's choosing the right speed for whatever the moment happens to be. So the same thing happens with communication. There are different forms of communication. So Zoom, say, like we're talking now, is super useful, right? If we didn't have it, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. But it's a different, the tenor and texture of this exchange is different than if you and I were sitting in a cafe together or a boardroom face-to-face, right? That doesn't make it worse. In some ways, it maybe makes it better, right? We become human doings instead of human beings, and we race through life instead of instead of living it. Do you live in fast forward? Always rushing, always busy, always distracted? Do you yearn to slow down? These are just a few of the questions our guest, Carl Honore, asked himself years ago. This has led him on an epic journey to understand the concept of slowing down and to help others learn to see that we live in a world addicted to speed and that slowness is a superpower. Carl is an award-winning writer, broadcaster, and TED speaker. In fact, his first TED Talk, called The Power of Slow, has over 3.2 million views. He is considered the voice of the global slow movement, and many refer to him as the guru of slow. What an awesome subject to start season eight of Design Of On. I'm your host, Justin Ahrens, and this season we have so many extraordinary people and stories to explore. And for this episode, I started out asking Carl to share the story of how this worldwide movement even started. How did he get into exploring this concept of slowness? Enjoy the show. Well, I would always start it if you're asking how I got into it, that's an yes. easy answer. I know where it all, I know the origin story. I know where it all started. And that's when I started reading bedtime stories to my son, who's all grown up now, but back in those days, I was just so fast that I'd go into his room at the end of the day and I'd be speed reading Snow White, right? So I'm jumping whole pages. I became an expert in what I call the multiple page turn technique, which I don't know anyone with small kids will recognize that trick. You try to flip two or three just to speed things up. Um, and it never works, right? Because our kids know the stories back to front. My son would right. always catch me. He'd say, you know, Daddy, why are there only three dwarves in the story tonight? You know, <laughs> what happened to Grumpy? Right. And, and this went on for a long time, actually pretty lamentable state of affairs, till I caught myself flirting with buying a book I'd heard about called The One Minute Bedtime Story. So Snow White in 60 Seconds. My first thought was, wow, what an idea. I need that book now. Amazon drone delivery, right? Right. But then the second reaction came flowing in and I just, it was Oh, it was like an out-of-body experience. I just saw myself in sharp relief and I thought, you have lost your mind, man. You've lost, you're racing through life instead mm-hmm. of living it. And that was when I kind of hit rock bottom. And I think people do have to have some kind of wake-up call in their lives before they begin to question living and fast forward. And for a lot of people, it's a health. Something just goes wrong with your body. Sure. One day the body says, that's it. No way, we can't go this fast anymore. For me, it was the bedtime story moment. And And that was what kind of hurled me into investigating not only my own addiction to speed, but the bigger picture. And that's kind of what, where it all started really. I mean, I guess when I began playing around with this idea of slow, there were some movements like slow food was there. There was spinoff from that slow cities. People were, but no one had really pulled it all together into one package. And I guess that's sort of what I did with my first book in praise of slowness was to say, well, look, there's a simple idea here slow with a capital S. It doesn't what, mean doing everything It's slow motion. Right, I think everyone has this absurd, idea right? at first, right? And then they're like, wow, now how I, what does that really mean? So um, yeah. before we dig in there, what were you doing at the time? You know, uh, I can totally relate to that story, by the way. Um, 
Uh, I, I used to read the, my kids where the wild things are. The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another, his mother called him Wild Thing, and Max said, I'll eat you up. And oh, yeah. um, it's not a very long book. You know, there's maybe a sentence a page. And I found myself doing the <laughs> grab three pages at a time and turn it. Yeah, we've and, all done it, man. <laughs> and so I can totally relate to that. What, what, what were you um, doing professionally at the time? Um, sure. And what were some of the things that were going on for you that, that were, uh, for lack of a better term, speeding uh, you up? Yeah. Well, two things I'd say to that. One is that I've always, I'm a naturally fast person, so I was inclined, even before fatherhood, to go fast, to be busy. And then when I had my first child, which was my son, Benjamin, I just didn't want to let anything drop. <laughs> so I just tried to shoehorn him in <laughs> to the schedule I had before, which created all kinds of tensions and paradoxes. And, you know, just, I was already in roadrunner mode. It just forced me to double down on that and to speed up even more. Professionally, you know, I was in a fast profession at the time. I was a journalist, I was a foreign correspondent, which is deadline mode, right? I mean, the mm -hmm. whole idea of getting stuff out, there's a deadline, it's, it's etched in stone, it's, Sky falls in if you miss it, right? So there was a lot of pressure time-wise from the work angle. So I definitely would go into his room, you know, in between high pressure moments in work and be unable to disconnect. So I would not only be trying to pull off in vain the multiple page turn technique, but I would probably have my phone, right? Thinking that matter at work I just left, could I just, you know, take a quick look and see what's happening here? Or mm -hmm. I was looking at my watch and wondering how many minutes had gone by and so the two things had bled into each other, right? Those moments that by their very nature are slow. When we sit down and read a story to our child, that has to be a disconnected, you know, fully present moment where all you're doing, you're just there, you're just reading, you're not on the clock. It just got polluted mm. and, and, and infected by the virus of hurry that had already taken over my professional life. So I suppose the two played off each other in a way. Yeah, we, uh, <clears throat> being in the creative industry, our whole life is deadlines. And so when you're talking about deadline to deadline, man, I can really relate to that. And I think, you know, even the last two years with just pandemic life, it feels in some ways life has quote unquote slowed down. And in a lot of other ways, life has really sped up or has felt compressed. So, uh, how do you feel like in the last two years that that perhaps um, your perspective or um, have you seen the pandemic impact slowness or speeding up or? Yeah. yeah, I think it's been an extraordinary moment for, well, in so many different ways, right? But for, for the slow movement, I think it's given it a huge fillip because in a sense, what the pandemic did by shutting down the world for m weeks or months at a time, was it, it forced upon us a global workshop in slow, right? We were just, you know, there was nothing to do that you couldn't have FOMO because there was nothing to miss out on, right? So we found ourselves confined to quarters and forced to slow down. And at first it was very revealing that people found that traumatic, right? It was we're withdrawal symptoms. We're also addicted to busyness and speed and distraction and action and productivity and doing stuff, busy schedules. You take all that away and we don't rejoice we panic, we fidget, we think, oh no, where's all the distraction stimulation we're used to? But because the pandemic lasted, you know, not two weeks, but 
basically two years in some ways. I think that for a lot of people, that's been enough to recalibrate, you know, to for some of those old habits to fall away and for new ones to take their place. So what the pandemic gave a lot of us was something we never had before, which was the time and the space to reflect, right? We do in a fast forward culture, it's all about reaction. You, and reaction is useful, right? Sometimes you've got to shoot from the hip and be fast, right? But at other times you need reflection. <laughs> in fact, a lot of times you need reflection. You need the two, two sides of that coin. And I think a lot of us had time to reflect and it's very revealing when you look at say social media or mainstream press or whatever, you hear so many stories or in our own social circles, I'm sure in your own private uh, circle of friends and family, you probably have similar examples of many people who've come out of the pandemic now, having for the first time, maybe in their lives, thought hard and deep about big questions like, who am I? What's my purpose here? You know, am I living the right life for me? Mm. And they've had the time to inhabit and play around with those questions and come up with some answers. And the answers are often no, you know, to, to the life before. So people are looking at what they had before and saying, you know what? No. So they're leaving, you know, in, in droves, leaving bad relationships or changing work or changing careers or moving from the city to the countryside or the countryside of the city or changing countries or, or changing, you know, gender identity, all these things that were kind of, we were skimming the surface of our lives and we weren't confronting those deep metaphysical big questions. That's what slowness gave a lot of us, I think was the space to do that. So that that's been a big plus, I think for many mm -hmm. people, there's also been, you talk, you work in the creative industries. I mean, there's an intimate bond between creativity and slowness. It's a bond that, the greatest thinkers in the arts, sciences, and business have always understood, right? You know, Darwin called himself a slow thinker. I mean, anyone who does anything creative knows that you need moments of slowness in order to tap into the, the creative juices coursing through our veins. And I think a lot of people found that having more control over their own time, if that was the case, it wasn't the case with everyone in the pandemic, but many people did regain more control over their time or they got more time back because they weren't wasting it commuting, that they found that with that extra time, they became more creative, more productive. A lot of companies talked about productivity going up during the pandemic because people had control over their own time. And what happens when you control your own time? You control your own rhythms, pace, and speed. Mm. So we're back to slowness again, right? If you give people temporal autonomy, you give them control over their own time, they will do things at the right speed, which is the essence of the slow philosophy, right? The What musicians call the tempo giusto, right? The correct tempo for every piece of music. If you give people the the wherewithal and the freedom to work at their own pace wherever possible, then sure. they're going to light it up, right? And I think a lot of companies have come away from that with that very important uh, lesson. Oh, that's that's fascinating. And, I, and yes, I can relate to that. I think on the flip side of that, you know, I I don't know what it's like, you know, in the UK right now, but, you know, even us as an organization uh, are wanting to have a little bit more in-person time. We've been completely, you know, um, uh, virtual and now we want to, we're never going to be full-time again. We'll, we'll be some form of hybrid. But I also, for me, and, and I don't know if, if you can relate to this at all, for me that that beginning was a, a culture shock uh, in a good way. And at the time it felt just really odd, right? And then as we um, started to get used to it, there's parts of it that I absolutely had love and I don't want to give up. And part of that is having some sense of, you know, a control of my day, control of my rhythm. But then there's also this aspect of human connection that I don't think has to happen every day. But 
at least from my perspective, happened more than it is now, it, like in person, as you know, as long as it's safe and everything. Uh, what do you think about that? You know, when it comes to the impact of slowness, totally that totally resonates with me. <clears throat> and and the idea of different forms of communication that maps perfectly onto the slow paradigm, right? Because slow, I come back again to the idea that it's it's not everything is slow, right? It's choosing the right speed for whatever the moment happens to be. So the same thing happens with communication. There are different forms of communication. So Zoom, say, like we're talking now, is super useful, right? If we didn't have it, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. But it's a different, the tenor and texture of this exchange is different than if you and I were sitting in a cafe together or a boardroom face to face, right? That doesn't make it worse. I mean, in some ways it makes it worse, but in some ways it maybe makes it better, right? Right. So I think what what's, pandemic has done is it's opened our eyes to the fact that there's a whole range now of ways of communicating they're all different they all bring different things to the party but we can have this richer broader arsenal uh, behind us right in our toolbox and i think that's you talked about what's going on in the united states it's exactly the same conversations happening in the uk and companies big and small saying you know what we are not going back to the old normal, right? We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna rejig here, and and we're gonna have some tectonic shifts. You know, we're going to have people in the office because that is essential for all kinds of uh, forms of work. Uh, but we don't need to be in the office all of us all the time physically. And so, you know, each company will have to work out its own formula, its own balance, uh, depending on you know the work it does and the staff it has, etc. But I think that idea of um, different forms of communication makes perfect sense, right? Sometimes you want, you know, even before the pandemic, sometimes I would communicate people with people via email, which is very fast or a text, but I don't want all my communication. I don't want to read bedtime stories by email. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there's, you know, <laughs> using the your weapon or your tool from your toolbox uh, to suit the moment. And which is very much in sync with all the talking and writing I do about slow, because you're about choosing the right approach in that moment. Uh, hmm. So I, I think we're going to see, it's so exciting. I feel really optimistic now as we come out of this as more, because there was a lot of inertia and resistance to the idea of rethinking work. And that's been blown out of the water now because so many of the arguments that were being marshaled against change yeah. have just been shown to Swiss cheese, you know, holes in them everywhere. Right. Yeah. And and so like the four day work week, for instance, was something that was was really spreading and gaining a lot of traction before the pandemic, but has just taken a quantum leap since then. You know, there's whole countries, Spain, Iceland, the UK just announced recently, I think it's going to be 300 companies now trying a four-day week. I mean, it's so many more examples. And mm. I'm not saying again that a four-day week is the universal solution for everyone, but it's just another example of how people are saying being always on, <laughs> working longer and longer, isn't always working smarter, right? Yeah. That if you give people that, that freedom again, we come back always to that word freedom to choose and design their own schedules. They're going to bring home the bacon in ways that you'd never imagine, right? That's mm. going to goose the bottom line in lots of really wonderful ways. I love it's it. It's just having the imagination and courage to do it. And I think yeah. the pandemic has maybe permission to try those things. Mm, I agree. I'd like to go back to a <laughs> phrase that you said earlier and just get a little bit more clarity on how you describe it, because <clears throat> I think I would be willing to bet my team. I know I am not desiring to go back to, you know, mm -hmm. warp speed uh, culture at times. And, you know, in a deadline driven business that, that I'm in, I mean, there's, there's just a, a harsh reality that, that will exist at times as much as we try to, you know, um, 
work around that or accommodate timelines. It just, <clears throat> you know, uh, if something as a writer or a correspondent, if something happens in the world, you can't put that on pause. You know, you have to go and, uh, and this is an assumption I'm making, you have to go and <clears throat> if that's your job and write about it and get the story as it is. And so I, in some ways, our, our jobs are, are similar. But you had used a phrase, and I would love you just to help define it a little bit more, is um, you, you called the uh, uh, a culture, the roadrunner culture that we um, uh, tend to get into. Can you define that more? You know, and, and especially when it came to when you were discovering how we had made, you know, sort of so many things in our world fast. I would love for you to just give some examples more of what you mean by that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, there are plenty of those around. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, I'll use a pandemic metaphor that we have been infected by the virus of hurry is the way I see it, right? It's mm -hmm. almost operates like a virus. It's contaminated and infected every corner of our lives so that it's not just in the workplace that we're, that every moment can feel like a race against the clock and we get stuck in deadline mode, even away from work in those really intimate human moments, like reading bedtime stories, we're reaching for, you know, one minute versions of stories or, you know, the one minute meditator. Uh, there's, I'm sitting in London, as I said earlier, and a few streets away, I walked past it actually this morning. Uh, there's a gym that offers an evening course in speed yoga, right? It's for time starved professionals. These people want to you know, salute the sun and bend their bodies into the lotus position, but they want to do it in five minutes instead of an hour, right? And and, and I thought I thought speed yoga was the most absurd manifestation of the roadrunner culture till a friend of mine in the United States, I think it was Florida, he was then got invited to a drive-through funeral. So right, so the church places the coffin at the entrance, <laughs> the mourners pull up by car and they say farewell to a loved one through a pane of glass. You know, it's I mean it's fast, but wow, you know, is it really a funeral, right? right. It's just extraordinary. And this predates these 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 drive-through funerals predate the pandemic, so it's not about social distancing; it's about speed. Mm. Yeah, uh, and you know, there, there's also the you know there's a technique floating around. Um, so you could see it on just in normal magazines. I saw it a little while ago in um, a women's magazine about you know how to how to reach orgasm in thirty seconds, and you just think. <laughs> I mean, it's like every moment, even even sex has become an Olympic sport, right? You know, it's like on your marks, get set, go, right? In the bedroom. <laughs> so I think that that creates a world where we feel like we are we are hurrying through our lives instead of living them. Mm -hmm. And we feel it at work, we feel it in our relationships, and it takes a colossal toll on everything from our health and diet to our families, schools, communities, relationships, and also, of course, on our ability to think, learn, innovate, create, work. It just means that we, we, we just get locked into this. We become human doings instead of human beings, and we race through life instead of instead of living it. So that's What's the your, kind of bad picture. Yeah. So <laughs> um, uh, so just I would love your perspective. Why do you think it's so hard to slow down, or or what do you think are the catalysts that just exist in our world these days yeah. that encourage us to speed up? I think um, well, I'll take the first part of that question first. That what makes it hard, there are a few things. One is that this, I used the word at the beginning of our conversation, addiction, addiction to speed. I think that that's where we are now, that we are addicted almost chemically, emotionally, philosophically, metaphysically to speed, right? You know, we, in fact, they've done research that shows, you know, you take away someone someone's cell phone and they start to suffer similar physical symptoms to a heroin addict if you take away their fix, right? You know, elevated blood pressure, sweaty palms, all these things, right? Um, so I, I think that there's a kind of element of addiction and 
And that means that even when we can feel in our bones it would be good for us to slow down, we'd love to put on the brakes, that we really struggle to do it, right? Because there are withdrawal symptoms when we slow down, you take away the speed and we don't rejoice. We we panic and fidget and think, mm. where's, give me some more speed, right? Where's, I need an adrenaline injection. I, I think there's also a cultural barrier here, which is that there's a deep and abiding taboo against slowness, that slow is a, it's a four letter word in our culture. It's a byword for lazy, stupid, boring, unproductive, right? A lot of things nobody wants to be associated with. So again, I think that makes it hard for us to slow down. We, If we do try to slow down, we feel guilty or ashamed or afraid or just, you know, inertia gets in the way. So I think those, and then also there's a, a deeper question. I think for a lot of people, speed, a fast forward life is a is a form of denial. It's a way of running away from yourself. It's, it's, it's a way of filling your head with distraction so you do not confront the big questions in your life, like I was talking about earlier, like, who am I, right? What, mm-hmm. what am I doing here? Those are scary questions. They're questions that need to be answered and confronted in order to live a life worthy of the name. I mean, that's what's back to Socrates, talking about the, the, the importance of the examined life. You can't examine your life if you are a headless chicken running around with one eye on your phone constantly, you know, rushing you know, 24-7. It doesn't work that way. You have to slow down. And so I think it's scary for people. It's easier just to put your head down and sweat the small stuff, you know, think, where are my keys? I'm late for my 11 a.m. It's easier to deal with that question than to deal with the question of, am I okay? All right. Am my family okay? Is this, you know, big, big questions. Those are the questions we all need to wrestle with in order to live fully, I would say, but they're, they're scary. And I think that kind of holds us back as well. I don't know about you, but these questions really resonated with me. I think one of the gifts of these pandemic years is that most of us have asked these types of questions. And I hope as we go into whatever the future looks like, we don't forget to slow down, pause and keep asking. There's also kind of structural things like you mentioned it earlier, the pressure from other people with deadlines and all that stuff. The consumer culture is part of this equation too. The, the whole world has become a, an infinite buffet of things to experience, consume, eat. And, and the natural human instinct, you know, we were, we're creatures of scarcity, right? The savannah, right? We're not, you put us in a world of abundance, we don't know how to stop, right? right. Our instinct is to want to have it all, like they say in the women's magazines, but having it all just means hurrying it all. So mm. I think those are some of the variables, you put them all in together and it, under, it explains why we're in this fast forward culture. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you for that. So let's go back to the, the, you know, Carl reading the book to his son, Benjamin, and you have this, you know, revelation of, wow, I am rushing through uh, this precious time that's only going to be with me for a bit. So what were the steps that you took uh, and you know, where did you start to kind of research this concept of like, man, what the heck is going on? Yeah, well, I suppose I started researching it by by reading, right? I started reading, and I started reading a lot of history, right? Reading the, some philosophy, reading because I had to understand the deeper roots of this. It seemed to me right from the get go that this was not something that we had <clears throat> minted in the 1990s, right? This, and, and sure enough, you discover pretty early on that this uncomfortable neurotic relationship with time and the clock and feeling time's wing chariot hurrying near these things go way back for lots of reasons right that are tied up with our humanity and mortality and stuff 
and then you overlay the modern world and it just gets much worse. Um, so I started, I guess, by, I, I started by stopping, right? I, I paused mm. and I began to think first about myself and looking at my life and then going into the kind of deeper stuff of philosophy and history. And then from there, traveling around the world and <clears throat> talking to people, getting down in the trenches, doing reporting, looking at the science, <clears throat> case studies and stuff. So that, that's my usual process. I tried to start in a big woolly way, you know, just letting the mind wander, bouncing ideas off myself, other people grappling with big thinkers through history and stuff. And then I kind of go a bit more granular and a bit more um, real world after that. So that's, that's my usual process. Uh, that, that's how I kind of put the idea in the book together. But for my own slowing down personally that you're asking about, I mean, I, there are so many things that I changed, but I had to, this is a really important point is you have to change them slowly. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the ironies of today is that we're all so impatient that we even want to slow down fast. So it's amazing how often people will say to me, and I kid you not, people say, well, you know, I read your book or I saw your talk, right? And I thought, yes, I need to slow down. So I, I started meditating and then I rushed across the street to do some yoga. And then I ran home to cook a slow food. But <laughs> that's, that's not the spirit of the thing. Uh, you, it, so it's, it's really about, you know, small steps usually for people, uh, you know, start off by rethinking how often your phone is switched on, you know, or maybe you turn off notifications uh, during certain hours of the day or, or, or whole days. Uh, and then at the end of the week, maybe you do a little pilot project, see how it worked, go back, tweak it and that kind of thing. So it's very, it's a very sort of pragmatic way of slowing down. So for me, a, a big part of it is always doing less, right? Prioritizing, delegating, looking, taking time to pause, look at what I'm trying to cram into the average week. And I can always find one or two things that aren't that important that I've kind of put in there just because, I don't know, <laughs> I often don't know why they're there. I've put them in there because <clears throat> I'm, I don't know, trying to please someone or that I, that I don't need to please. And, and it, it, but just taking that slow time to pause and take a global view of the time and how you're using it. Most of us can identify things that can go, <clears throat> which right away frees up more time to do the other stuff at a slower pace, you know, to do it at a more sensible mm -hmm. Okay. Technology is important as well. Can I just circle back to something you talked about deadlines earlier on? Yeah, I was. That, I'm glad you you brought that up because I was going to yeah. ask you about that very concept. But yeah, please go. Super important. There's two ways to think about how to deal with the pressure, the external pressure of deadlines. One is that if you think of slow, uh, I sometimes think of it as a battery that you top up. So if you have when the deadline pressure is not on, if you make sure that in those non-deadline moments you're really slowing down, right? So you're looking after yourself physically, you're eating well, you're taking time to sleep enough, you have hobbies, you're getting off the, the work treadmill, you're, you're recharging and refreshing and reinvigorating yourself. If you take that slow time for yourself, then when the, the, the deadline, you know, hits the fan, let's say, you've got the, you've got the, 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 the storage, right? You've got the power, the slow power to do it, yeah? The trouble, I think, for many of us is that we have those deadlines, like you and I are talking about our the work we do and there's a lot of deadlines coming but as soon as the deadline stops the danger and i think the risk for many of us is that we just carry on a deadline mode right mm -hmm. so you get that deadline done what happens you go downstairs and you're wolfing down dinner as though you're still on a deadline right or you're speed writing bedtime stories when the work is done yeah but you're still hyped up you're pumped up right so i think it's so important to you know to, to, to be sure that you're consciously changing gears was conserving power, conserving energy, building up that stock of awareness, of creativity, all those things that come from slowing down so that when the deadline hits, a blink moment, 
you can blink really effectively, right? So that's one thing I'd say about how to handle deadlines and external pressures. The other is, and this could be a little bit more problematic, but it's sometimes just as important, is to open up a dialogue with the people who are imposing these deadlines on you in the first place, right? Because one thing that happens in our culture is that because we're also pumped up on adrenaline, we're also worried about time and stuff, that the default position is to ask for everything as soon as possible, you know, sooner than you actually need it often, right? And what I found, I found this even in journalism, right? I mean, obviously not for a daily deadline because you have a daily deadline, but I found, and I know that this is something that happens in other industries, perhaps even more than in journalism, is that when a client says, we need this by March 1st, if you say, well, look, yeah, we can deliver by March 1st, but is that is that really hard? You know, if we had five more days, say, we could, we could smash this one out of the park in a way that, you know, we'll deliver a great job on March 1st, but, you know, or have, I'm not sure exactly the way you would sure. phrase it, right? Yeah. You, don't want to, you want to frighten the horses and scare off the client. It's, and it's easier to do this with clients you know and who have a track record with you, know you do good work already, of course. But to have that conversation, and very often I think you'll find, and this is not just me from my own experience, this is something I've seen in companies and in people that I've worked with um, and across industries, that you just open up that little chink in the armor, right? And people will say, actually, you know what? I, Oh, yeah, another week is fine. And then you produce better work and people, you create a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy and a, and a happiness loop where they think, oh, okay, well, we don't need to be so rushed. These people do really excellent work. Okay, we give them another four days. You know, so there's a kind of de defensive posture that people adopt, which is as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> when in fact, as soon as possible, doesn't really have to be the case. So if you break through that wall of silence, that wall of speed and say, okay, is it really as soon as possible actually in this case? Maybe five, six times out of time you'll find it's not. And then there's room to maneuver. You got you can slow down, you can give more of yourself, more time and attention to the project, deliver a better outcome. Hopefully that leads to more business, you know, yeah. with that client. When these things become a the domino effect, that client maybe talks to another client or you tell, you know, and you go from there. You know, that's great advice. And you know, it's interesting. Uh on the flip side of that, what we find really fascinating is uh, we are starting to ask those questions more often. But, you know, Carl, if if they're in a culture, right, that is seemingly, you know, uh, how you call it, a roadrunner culture, uh, it's interesting sometimes the reactions you get. But I agree, more times than not, you will get more time. But then uh, it's really fascinating as you are trying to read the room of, you know, uh, unfortunately, I think in our world, sometimes when someone asks for more time, the one of the assumptions are, are they, are they not as good as are they not yeah. as committed? And so that's, I think that um, I think it's always worth the ask, right? And and you're going to still have your opportunity to, to prove yourself one or the other. But I've been realizing that more. And, and since we are, um, were able to connect, I've been really observing even our culture and the conversations we have and saying, wow, I, I even have that sometimes in my brain of, oh, why can't they get that done? That should be done for sure by that time period. And then I sat back and thought to myself, but does it really need to be done by then? Yeah. It could take <laughs> exactly. more time, <laughs> but for some reason we have this sort of built in uh, somewhat, uh, I think into yeah. our, into our brains and it, you know, be culturally and all that sort of thing. Well, you've given, you know, two really great perspectives on how to slow down. I think uh, I want to just give the floor to you uh, again and say for those listening, um, are there other ways that you typically recommend or that you have heard of or found mm -hmm. where people sure. have 
you know, instilled um, uh, more slowness into their life and perspective? Yeah, it load, uh, loads. I'll give you uh, three. Say, um, the first is, I mean, you know, breathing. Right? We know that the breathing is right there in all our toolboxes. You slow down, you become aware of breathing, whether it's through meditation or mindfulness or just simply, you know, conscious breathing. That creates a kind of it enhances feelings of calm. It takes down some of the stress hormones. So you know, just thinking about your breath, making sure you're breathing deeply, you're just taking little pause, little break moments. Right? You don't need to go off and become a Dalai Lama and meditate for four hours, right? You know, even if you just stop for a few minutes uh, or even 30 seconds, you know, a couple of minutes can make a big difference. Uh, and you can do that at your desk. I would argue you'd be better off getting up from your desk and away from your computer. But, uh, you know, you even at your desk, you can just make a quick little, like a quick hack to slow down in a way is your breath. And that's there for all of us. It's free. You can often do it without anybody noticing it. Yeah. Um, so that's quite handy. I think it's useful also to incorporate some kind of slow ritual into your daily routine. And that could be anything uh, It'll vary from person to person. It could be, you know, reading a bit of poetry or knitting or uh, sketching. You know, I, I'm a terrible sketcher, but I find it a really soothing thing to do, to look at something really hard because most of the time we don't do that. You just skim over stuff. So just have that in your back pocket, uh, maybe literally uh, your to hand, and you can just whip it out at any point and just do it. Any kind of activity that acts like it inoculates you against the virus of hurry and just have it in your schedule or to hand at all times. Like and for example, I, actually taking a uh, lunch or a walk that could. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's kind of come. That was the third one that kind of goes into that one. I mean, lunch, eating, you know, dining al desco, don't do it right. Get up, go away, <laughs> eat, enjoy your food, you know, pay attention to it and then come back refreshed and recharged, rebooted afterwards. You know, it's you, 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 the human studies are pretty clear that you cannot focus and do good, solid, productive work for hour after hour after hour. We're, we're much more creatures of cycles, right? Where you get little bursts, then you need to have a break, reset, maybe reset your body, come back. And, the, and food is such a good moment to do that, right? And, and of course, we know that eating when your mind is elsewhere means you tend to eat too fast, you can eat more, you don't have to digest as well. You know, so many reasons why slow food and slow eating should be part of everybody's schedule and everybody's way of being in the world. Final thought, just plucking out what you said there about going for a walk, nature, right? Mother nature, uh, whether it's people talk about uh, forest bathing they talk about in Japan or ecotherapy or, uh, you know, green baths, all these sorts of, because we know that being out in nature, we are creatures of the natural world and being in green spaces, again, soothes, tranquilizes, brings serenity and calm. It just slows you down. So you don't have to go out, you know, climb a mountain in the Rockies. You know, you can just go out to a park or sit under a tree in a courtyard or just any kind of green space that you have to hand. So take that little walk and, you know, if you find yourself stuck at work or feeling, you know, your shoulders sore or any little sign from your body, you know, just get up, go for a little walk, go out to wherever there's some green space and then come back again instead of banging your head against the coal face and you'll find that and i call this the delicious paradox of slow right that mm. when you take those slow moments and you slow down you actually get stuff done faster you save time in the long run right so for me my, my go-to line is that in a world addicted to speed slowness is a superpower mm. man i love that thank you for that so i think one of my final questions here is you talk often uh in in some of your materials about this concept of a slow movement. And it, 
is how would you define that? Is it, you know, uh, incorporating those uh, tips and, you know, practices in our daily life? Or is it bigger than that? I think it's it's bigger than that. It's, I mean, you can do two sides of slow, right? There's the individual act of deceleration where you embrace all of these, I mean, there's just gazillions of slow things you can do to become healthier, happier, more productive, more creative, a better friend, a better lover, a better parent, all that stuff, right? That's And that's wonderful on the individual level. But for me, that's should only ever really be the first step. It's not the end point anyway. The end point is something much more collective, you know, that we create a slow world, right? Where we reconnect with other people. And I, I think it's always a danger, especially in a kind of late capitalist, hyper-consumerist culture that we turn things like, well, even you know, whether it's, I don't know, feminism or um, environmentalism or slow into a, another product, something that's going to make us shine on the stage and who cares what happens to everybody else. I think that that's not enough, right? I think that slowing down, one of the main benefits is that it reconnects us with other people. And if we do slow in a way that's collective, if we slow down all of us together with the same spirit, then we're going to create a, a society that's more sustainable, healthier, more, there's more solidarity, you know, and that's what we need, right? If you look around the world now, is in a mess with climate change and socioeconomic inequality and misinformation, all these huge epic challenges. We can only ever grapple with those together and we will only ever forge solutions if we slow down and reflect and think and, and, and join hands and attack them as one. There's a great African proverb, in fact, which springs to mind now, which sums this up. And it says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think that that gets at what I'm saying here about slow. There's, of course, is the individual benefits of slow, but I hope that that's not enough for people. Um, that once you do, and I do think it usually isn't in the long run. People, once they slow down individually, even if you start off thinking this is all about me, the very fact of slowing down opens you up. It opens your heart. It opens your mind. It opens your soul. It connects you with things bigger than you. So I think it's often leads like a Trojan horse almost, right? People think, okay, I'm going to get... I'm going to have better abs. I'm going to be more successful at work, right? <laughs> I'm going to live longer. I'm going to be more beautiful. All these stuff from slowing down. Great, great. But is that really what it's all about? I think the once people get in there and they start having time to reflect, to think, to deal with those big questions, you go deeper and you become an agent for, for making the world a better place, which ultimately I think is hopefully what we should all be aspiring to. And I think mm. slow is the way to that. Man, I, <laughs> you just reframed that for me in a way that really resonates. Thank you for that. Although I would like better abs, but um, that's a that's a <laughs> topic for another day, right? <laughs> well, uh, Carl, man, I'm so grateful. So, what are you working on these days? Uh, well. I've, I've, my, one of my pandemic babies was I, I wrote a workbook finally uh, I never really had the time or the bandwidth to do it but it was I've taken all my thinking about slow and how to do it put it into a workbook called 30 days to slow which I published uh, last year so that's out there people can find that and, and all everything else about me on at carlhonore.info so my name all together carlhonore.info so that's been one of my projects I'm, I was commissioned as well to write a children's book for the first time, which has been a real joy, actually. And it's about slow travel. So I, I write about journeys and imagine myself into journeys around the world, things like, you know, walking the Inca Trail or riding a steamship up the Mississippi or mm. going for a cycle ride around the Baltic Sea or whatever, right? Slow journeys. 
And it, it was, it's been a lovely thing to write during the pandemic when I couldn't travel to imagine myself into all of these exotic places um, through travel blogs and reading about other people's experiences and stuff. So yeah, and, and I love, I've loved writing a different register for children. And actually just the other day I was thinking, I will be able to read this book to my own grandchildren, which mm. was kind of a wonderful thought. I'll be able to read my own oh, that's beautiful. My, a book they will get, and I won't be deploying the multiple page turn technique. Well, I was about to say, I was going to, I was going to um, hold you uh, accountable here. How long does it take to read your children's book? Have you timed it? <laughs> it's still in editing now. So I'm waiting okay. for the, I get it in page. I get it in chunks. I need to get it all in one piece and then I'll, I should do a kind of, uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I will, I, I, I guarantee, I vow not to deploy that, um, that multiple page. Oh, that's wonderful. But so I, going back to, going back to your workbook, what sorts of things are, are um, in the, and by the way, we'll put all of this information in our show sure. notes, but the workbook itself, what are some of the, uh, well, let me phrase that question. So for someone who's listening to this, who's interested in, really exploring slowness, but maybe struggling on a way to start. Is your workbook a great tool to possibly get them in the right mindset to start that very, process? Very much so, yeah. yeah, very much so, because I, I've kind of structured it with four, over four weeks. So each week has a theme. There's the theme of mind, body, play, and work. Mm. And I, I, I toyed with just throwing like spaghetti at the wall, just throwing all these tips and things just randomly. And I could have done that and said, you know, here are 500 tips for slowing down, but I decided that wasn't really going to be that useful for people, that it would be much more helpful to have some sort of architecture or structure to work within. Uh, so it's got, you know, things like scorecards and ways of following and tracking your progress and stuff and reflecting on it. And, and I just think that's a much more powerful way to put these these slow hacks into practice. Uh, so, yeah, and I'm doing, I've been doing online workshops with people and companies and also just public ones. And it's just been wonderful to see how it lands differently with different people and people well, because there's loads of different techniques and exercises you can try. And the idea, of course, in keeping with the slow philosophy is not to do every exercise in week one, in week one, right? Like pick the two or three that really light you up and go with those and keep the others for later. And and it just, I, I just think that structure works well. And, and it's mm. a good way to, I think for anyone who's feeling stymied, and hamstrung by the whole kind of speed culture, just thinking, I, I want to slow down, but I don't know where to start. It is a really good starting point because it, it gives you the big picture stuff, but but it's really about the roll up your sleeves, let's get down in the trenches and let's do this, right? Let's do this together. So that's that's really the spirit of it. Whereas my other books are more, you know, 30,000 feet. Obviously there's lots right. of stories about people slowing down and you can think, oh, I'll do that and that, but this is much more sort of do this, try this, you know, what is, you know, and, and what did it mean? How could you adapt it and stuff? And it's, for me, it was a different kind of writing and I really, really enjoyed it actually. It was one of well, the I love the science behind it. I'm, I've been a big Atomic Habits uh, reader the last two years, uh, James Clear's book. And one of the things that I've really resonated with him is I was in the past, the guy that would say, okay, here, here are the 10 ways I need to be slow this week or today. Right. And it's just, you know, it's actually too many and it would actually speed me yeah. up versus yeah. here's <laughs> here's this one thing right and that could be don't eat in front of your computer get up and go on a walk and eat not in front of your computer you know it sounds insanely simple because it is but oftentimes it's it's hard to incorporate you know if you're trying to do a yeah. hundred other things so well thank you my friend it's so great to uh, get to meet you 
And, um, you know, normally I try to do this in person and that, that as a travel, um, uh, lover, I love to go around. Um, I would have enjoyed to come to London to meet you in person. Um, but, uh, next time, next time. (laughs) Uh, And we can talk about some of your other work on ageism, which is also fascinating. So, uh, thank you. Um, so grateful for our time and uh, you have a a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carl, for taking the time to slow down, exploring this concept, and to share it with the world. So amazing. Carl has so many resources on his site to help you explore this idea, including an online slow school, where you can take the course, How to Harness the Power of Slow to Thrive in a Fast World. You can find it all at carlhonore.com. C-A-R-L-H-O-N-O-R-E.com. I would also like to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show soundtrack. For more on Ryan and his music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music. To design of his audio engineer, Steve Wick, who loved this episode so much, he bought his favorite children's book just so he could read it out loud. I give you the Derek Zoolander Center for Kids Who Can't Read Good. How can we be expected to teach children to learn how to read if they can't even fit inside the building? I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell others about our show and stay tuned for more season eight coming soon. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. See you next episode.